Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today I'm joined by Maymay Anudiwe, co-founder and executive vice president of legal and business intelligence at Evasort. Evasort is a company using AI and advanced contract lifecycle management functions to help companies negotiate, organize, and extract data from their contracts. While still a student at Harvard Law, Maymay helped build Evasort with three of his peers through the school's innovation lab. Inspired by their experiences doing contract work at legal internships, they developed a software that structures data from contracts so that attorneys don't have to do so manually. Today, Maymay and Evasort CEO Jerry Ting lecture together at Harvard, sharing their experiences as legal tech entrepreneurs and teaching law students how they can follow a similar path. Maymay also has a strong interest in space law, having written the peer review article, Africa and the Artemis Accords, a review of space regulations and strategy for African capacity building in the new space economy. That's a long title, but the article focuses on the potential impacts of frameworks such as the Artemis Accords on African Union states and their space development efforts. Additionally, Maymay is co-owner of the African Museum of the Metaverse, featuring some of the largest collections of art from top African and black artists. We had a wide-ranging conversation, and Maymay talks about why he made the leap to founding a company, his thoughts on generative AI, teaching a course at Harvard, and his fascination with space law. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Thank you for listening. Hey, May, it's great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure is all mine, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I look forward to our conversation. Ditto. Let's start with the basics. You're a graduate of Harvard Law School. You're the co-founder of Evasort, and you're a part-time lecturer at Harvard. What made you want to go to law school? Yeah, I mean, I think... There's the running joke that just anyone who did anything humanities, social studies after college, right, kind of law school beckons a little bit, right? And so I did international studies and uh, French undergrad and actually was simultaneously looking at going into law school as I was also up for actually the Rhodes Scholarship looking at doing international development uh, at the time when I was in uh, college and When I did get into law school, you know, there's always the weighing of, do you go to a place where you have a very big scholarship or, you know, do you go to a place where you might go in debt and might have kind of potential kind of further opportunities? And there was something, I mean, as someone with a Nigerian parent, once I got into Harvard, it was kind of game over. I kind of had to, I had to go there. (laughs) You were were going to explain that to your parents to turn that one down, were you? (laughs) Exactly. But I will say, though, what excited me about it was the fact that it seemed like there are opportunities beyond just practicing law that could open themselves up to me if I were to kind of go in that direction. And so uh, I was I've always been interested in kind of, you know, law and government. I've worked at electoral commissions. You know, my dad lived in Nigeria. I spent lots of times abroad and seen kind of how lack of rule of law can, you know, lead to issues in society. And so I knew I wanted that skill set and to be able to, you know, have that armament to maybe even do change down the line. I read somewhere where you, you, you never really intended to practice law. Did you have a goal formed more than what you've just articulated as to what you wanted to do with a law degree? Not too much. I mean, if you look at even my career at Harvard Law School, you know, yes, I was part of uh, Eversoid, you know, joined in my 1L. 
right? With kind of Jake and Jerry, our CEO and CEO, who were two L's at the time. And Amin, who was our CTO, was a PhD at MIT at the time. And I joined that from one L. But I was also the president of the, you know, Harvard African Law Association. I interviewed the current president of Ghana as editor-in-chief of Africa Policy Journal while I was there. That must have been an awesome experience. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I was part of the kind of first ever year of the SEALs, the Space Exploration Admiralty Law Society, which is kind of the Harvard Law Space Club. In its first year of its founding, I was a part of that, too. So I definitely took different opportunities that I found interesting, you know, at Harvard and you know, I was lucky enough that one of the things I tied myself to was as successful and groundbreaking as Eversort and such. I could kind of build a broader career off of it. Well, let's talk a little bit about Eversort. I, I want to come back to the other things you're talking about, your work on the African Law Association and your, your interest in space. There's so much ground we can cover. But start by telling us, what is Eversort? What does it do? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, Eversort is an AI-powered contracting tool for companies. And we help companies perform all tasks around contracts from when you need to draft them, request them, you know, going through signing and negotiating, and of course, storing them moving forward. And uh, one of the key innovations in Eversort, something that we identified as, you know, 1Ls and 2Ls in law school was the idea that, you know, when we went out and interned at law firms, we saw a lot of the work we were doing was copy pasting language that was already in contracts and, you know, putting it in other places for folks to track and kind of have that information. And it just struck us that it didn't make sense to have a human basically manually structuring the date of that information by saying, this is this clause, this is the effective date, this is the expiration date. I mean, even if you want to run a search and say, show me all my NDAs, you need to have had someone who typed, this is an NDA, Mm -hmm. this is an MSA. You know, like you can't have that data without that necessary manual step. And so we thought, you know, in the year 2023, when your car can drive itself to work and your, your phone will suggest music for you, It doesn't make sense to be storing contracts in a way where you need to manually structure the data. Any system that's storing the contract should in itself be passively structuring the data of that contract so that when an issue arises that's unforeseen, like COVID hits, all of a sudden that throwaway clause force majeure that you've never looked twice at, you need to know every single one you've ever signed that refers to pandemics or epidemics or quarantines You've got that information at your fingertips because you've been storing it at the clause level, at the data level, rather than the document level, which would, of course, require that any time you need to know any of the details or commitments or obligations in your contracts, you have to go back and do that. And so I think that core idea of storing contracts at the obligation level and not just the document level, I think uh, kind of was a key part that set off Eversort. And it was actually a couple of years after perfecting that artificial intelligence that we even built out kind of the whole pre-signature contract drafting negotiation. And, you know, now we're kind of in the generative AI where you can, you know, begin to draft contracts automatically, et cetera, as well. So I hope that's uh, the long and short of kind of who we are as a a company. Yeah, I want to talk about generative AI here in a minute, but but let's stick on the 1L and 2Ls who in turn and see this archaic way people are storing information and think there has to be a better way. Okay, I get the idea, but how is 1L and 2Ls, do you bring that idea to market? How do you how do you bring that to fruition? What was that journey like? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say, one, you know, we're very lucky by the proximity of MIT and data scientists at MIT, because to your point, one L's and two L's alone cannot make... But I would say we're also really lucky by the experience of our CEO, Jerry Ting. And he actually, in college, you know, he's of Taiwanese descent, and his father did construction and often to deal with contracts and made a lot of errors from a grammatical perspective. So he kind of made Grammarly before Grammarly when he was in college, right? And actually had the, uh, they were actually able to make the technology, which gave him an understanding of natural language processing technology. Of course, being a first time founder and, you know, a college student, he kind of neglected the the business side. So they never actually sold anything. They just kind of made this great technology and Grammarly happened and the rest is history. And so after that, he actually got some experience in sales working at Yelp and then came to law school, fully committed to being a lawyer until he saw what he was being asked to do as a lawyer. And his experience in natural language processing told him, it doesn't make sense for me to be doing this regardless of the crazy amounts I'm getting paid for this, right? And I do think we benefited a little bit from the idea that he had had that swing of the bat before and kind of, you know, in running a business and trying it and learned and kind of was able to implement that. There's actually something that, you know, there's a statistic that kind of scares entrepreneurs sometimes that 85 or 90% of founders fail in their first startup. But I think people look at that the wrong way. In reality, it's not that it's failure. It's almost that that failure is a step towards the success, almost a necessary step. Like you almost have to try and then learn from it to get it right. And so like, uh, I just, when you hear that statistic, I don't think it means don't start a company, it means start earlier, right? Get that failure out of the way. <laughs> right. Have your swing at the bat and miss once and so you can get the hit the next time. Mm-hmm. What intrigued you to get involved? You're a 1L, you're, you're grown up in Ohio, you're at Harvard. These guys pitched this idea and and... Was it like, this is great? Or what caused you to take that step into the unknown? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, I had almost, I actually was able to met them first through my Balsa mentor, Black Law Association mentor. She did her 1L, she did consulting at McKinsey in Silicon Valley. And she was helping me do case interviews because I also was interested in non-traditional work and consulting was one of those. And so actually... Jake and Jerry, Eversword CEO and COO, also did consulting. As you can tell, they're a little bit more business minded. They actually like split a law firm and BCG their 1L summer. So they kind of experienced both during that summer. And so they knew her well. And when they just happened me walking by, you know, as one does at Harvard, did the study rooms in Wasserstein, you know, they saw Julian in there who they knew. Uh, they saw someone practicing case interviews for consulting. Not that many people in law school are looking at consulting. So they definitely want to help someone who thinks a little bit differently. And then afterwards, they told me a little bit about Eversort and they were kind of, you know, beginning to hire and, and look at kind of getting the first engineers on the team. At the time, it was just uh, Jake, Jerry, and Amin, uh, who's the data scientist at, uh, and PhD at, uh, at MIT. And I guess there had not been that many students in law school. You know how law students are so focused on that one role, especially in 1L. Like they heard this, they were just dismissing it. But for me, as I said before, I was looking for all these opportunities, like, you know, talking to, you know, presidents of, you know, Nigeria and Ghana and like doing space law. Right. And so when I heard that they were, you know, regularly going across the river to the Harvard Innovation Lab with data scientists from MIT training algorithms to automate parts of lawyers work, what I just thought was, 
even I didn't think I didn't see dollar signs. I didn't see any of that stuff. I just thought that seems fascinating. It seems like exactly stuff I want to learn and be a part of. And even if it doesn't go anywhere, not that I expected it to, I would be a better and probably a better lawyer ultimately by knowing what's coming, by being involved with the development of this technology. And so I really kind of saw it almost as part of my education at Harvard that I have the opportunity to go to the Harvard Innovation Lab regularly and, you know, work with them to build out business models, but also train algorithms and build solutions. As you apply artificial intelligence to your company, what's the impact of the developments in generative AI on your business or you think on legal tech as a general proposition? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so generative AI is definitely, you know, very much on vogue right now. Yes, Um, it is. (laughs) So when I think about chat GPT and generative AI, I think of it as the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. Which is to say that we've been using AI for a long time. Like I said, I mean, Netflix, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, Google, these are all AI companies. We see them as, oh, it's this company, it's social media, it's that. No, these are all AI companies, right? That have been kind of changing our lives, you know, kind of for, for years, right? And when I say it's the straw that broke the camel's back, I mean that although We couldn't even imagine living our life today without algorithms. I think it took ChatGPT's kind of fake human facade to really have people wake up to just the powerful things that we're using every day that are driving all of our lives. I mean, even marketing people think about, well, how do I game the algorithm, right? Like, you know, so we're already living in this world, but I think we didn't realize it until that kind of chat GPT. And I think the danger of it being the straw that breaks the camel's back is that you've got people who pick up that piece of straw and say, this is the heaviest piece of straw in the world. It broke this camel's back when we already know there's a lot of straw there already, right? And so I I don't want folks to over-focus on this one, even though all of these kinds of capabilities exist. And so, like I said, you know, the fact that we structure the data in all your contracts, you've got companies signing hundreds of thousands of agreements with 50, 60 obligations and commitments in them. And then maybe you're keeping track of five things, right? Like the date, you know, maybe a limitation liability clause. And that should be illegal in the year 2023. You should not even be allowed to, as a company, sign contracts like that without being able to have a process to keep track of all that information, right? If you told this to a lawyer in a vacuum, it wouldn't make sense. The only reason it makes sense is that we've evolved our profession for hundreds of years in an environment where it would be impossible to actually know every clause or provision, you know, in a contract. So we accept the risk of only keeping track comprehensively a couple. But we very quickly transitioned into a time where we can have that level of visibility. And frankly, it's getting more and more negligent not to have that much. And so I say that as even though we want to rush to generative AI and kind of the most kind of advanced technologies that there are right now, this very basics that legal teams have not used AI for yet, which is not to say that we're not excited about it. I mean, one, I will say I've always been a little bit skeptical on the generating contracts. Like, I'm like, all oh, these companies have templates. It's not that crazy to be able to you know generate. But I do think one place that we've been seeing success in employing it is that one of the big issues when you look at automated contract review. When you look at having AI do that first pass review of a contract so a human doesn't have to do it. One of the issues is that humans and AI negotiate very differently and that humans, of course, 
we don't want to redline everything. We try to you know, go into a scalpel and change what we can to have the most impact while reducing the amount of words we change. While AI says this clause is not our standard erase, <laughs> replace, <laughs> I mean, it just gets rid of the whole thing, right? So using generative AI, we found that we can help the AI actually, instead of just deleting an entire paragraph and replacing it with your standard, it can make small changes in a counterparty's language that brings the kind of outcome to what you want without that big red line in the middle in the same way a human would do. So I do think there's, I mean, and obviously there's a lot of other, and we can talk a long time about opportunities for generative AI. I just want to get the idea across that although it is exciting, it's not everything. And there's really kind of basic things with artificial intelligence that I think companies and legal teams and law firms are neglecting. And I wouldn't want this excitement around generative AI to have them kind of neglect those further. Yeah, the adoption of technology has always been a challenge in the profession, hasn't it? You guys must confront that at Evasort, getting people to actually use the capabilities of the software, buying it. Sort of how have you learned to overcome those challenges yeah, yeah, yeah. We we almost exclusively have to deal with that challenge, right? Um, uh, yeah, I would say that you have to really challenge people, which can be uncomfortable. Because I mean, think about this situation. I'm talking to people who've been practicing law longer than I've been alive, and I never even took the bar. Yet I'm telling them, hey, I think what you're doing doesn't make sense with what, and in like, and you know, like the audacity to even say that, right? But you have to say that because I'll tell you when this doesn't work is when people try to take this advanced technology, but don't update their processes or how they approach things, right? Absolutely. I think of it like if you buy a vacuum, but you just keep pushing around dirt as if it's a broom and don't turn it on. And like, that's how you're vacuuming. Well, then the second someone comes later and tries to sell you that person a broom again, they're going to buy that broom. Cause they're like, yeah, this vacuum wasn't that good. It's just about as good as a, but it's because they never turned it on. They never actually used it as a vacuum. They're just pushing dirt around like it's a broom. And so I even like, we, we tell our teams all the time when we're onboarding folks, it's not enough just so they have it in their hands. They have to know kind of this different, more data-centric approach to kind of contracting and lawyering, because if they're not turning on that vacuum, then down the line, they might just go pick up a broom again and be like, oh, those vacuums suck anyway. No pun intended. Yeah. I mean, I, I presume part of the challenge is getting people to look at their contract base as assets, as opposed to just risk and liabilities, because they're a huge part of a company's capabilities and, and capital. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's um, you're right. As lawyers, we try to see contracts as these bespoke, beautiful, forged documents. Right. When, to your point, especially in this era and right now, we are undeniably in the era of data where, you know, data is valuable. All executives have to become data executives, marketing, sales, finance are looking at graphs all day. But you think about it, contracts are the most important data set at a company. You know, they control and manage every vendor relationship, every customer relationship, and every employee and partner relationship. That is what's driving the business. And even though legal is sitting on top of contracts, which is once again the most valuable data in the era of data, we're the business unit that engages with its projects 
the least from a data perspective. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of power and opportunity when you flip that switch because then it will actually elevate the role of the general counsel or chief legal officer, kind of, you know, legal leader in the organization because you're no longer just mitigating risk, which is important, but you can proactively kind of address issues and proactively find value to capture that other business units might not be able to because you have that privileged position of sitting on top of the contract where you can see these things. Absolutely. Now, you're also a part-time lecturer at Harvard Law School where you teach a, a class in startup entrepreneurship. Yep, and innovations in legal technology. In innovations in legal technology, which is the life you lead. What lessons from your own experience at Evisort do you try to communicate to your students? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think first things first, just them having a faculty in their kind of you know educational career that is someone who, I mean, I graduated 2019 and I co-lecture with Jerry, our CEO, graduate 2018, who recently graduated because we know the world's changed a lot in the last few years alone, and then took an alternative path where we did not take the bar, where we went straight to Silicon Valley, where we kind of, you know, started building out a company and going from there. I think just having that experience for students, you look at a lot of our students, we had a weirdly high percentage of them who had already started their own companies, you know, and they were actually entrepreneurs in law school already. And they didn't have kind of examples of that being successful. And like, you know, it just sounded crazy. Right. But I think just being able to kind of be and have that example for folks just is important to let them know it's okay to take these more alternative routes. And, you know, I often joke and tell my students at Harvard, it's like, if, if you at Harvard feel like you can't do whatever you want, what hope does everyone else have? You should be able to think that you can kind of, you know, take that chance and, and kind of go for it. And I think secondly, you know, there's a lot that you don't learn about when it comes to kind of actually starting a business and like, you know, hiring your first employees and what it's like to go and kind of do VCs. Like last year, we even brought, you know, um, Gary Reiner, who's on the board of General Atlantic, former CIOG and on Eversort's board. He came to class and one of our students who has his own startup actually gave him a pitch and actually got real feedback <laughs> and directly in the class. And so That's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot we're doing there. And on the innovations of legal technology, like they just said with generative AI, technology is changing so fast. The fact that we get to come each year, you know, have speakers come in and talk about these technologies and then also kind of update them. Like this year, we're going to talk about generative AI. We're going to talk about some of these things, I think is also um, uh, interesting. And I think lastly, we do a lot of programming while we're on campus. It's only a two-week class. It's only one credit. Uh, it's going to start again this April, April uh, 3rd through the 12th. So this year, the second week of class is simultaneous with the Harvard Association of Law and Business's annual conference, and we're sponsoring that. And so we're actually helping to do a panel as part of that symposium where, you know, Jerry, you know, our CEO is going to be speaking on a panel with the AGC of OpenAI, as well as, you know, uh, Professor Zitrain from Harvard Law School talking about kind of issues there. And then the week before... Um, actually, the first week of April, 
We're actually doing an invitation-only forum at the Center on Legal Profession with David Wilkins out there. And it's focused on ESG and legal operations. We're doing case studies and, you know, the general counsel and head of legal operations at Microsoft are walking through kind of their processes and these issues. And so we also try to, like, the way we frame it is while we're on campus those two weeks, and we did events last year too, even to go to podcasts, but we want Harvard Law to be the center of the legal innovation and legal technology world during those two weeks when we're on campus. So, you know, we also try to create those kind of programs and panels and conversations. So, and it's also is a good dynamic because we tell students in our class, hey, yes, come to our class, but make sure to attend this panel on Tuesday and make sure to attend this as well. So it's kind of a more comprehensive experience, even though it's only two weeks. That sounds awesome. What a, what a great experience for students. You have to spawn a whole bunch of next generation of entrepreneurs and leaders. That's got to be fulfilling for you. Mm-hmm. We just want the class that we wish we had as students. Yeah. So what's next for Evasort? Where do you see it in two or three years? I mean, I think right now you could not choose a more exciting time to be at Evasort just because I'll tell you a little bit of a, it's an anecdote, I guess. I actually, you know, if you look at my LinkedIn, I'm very active there and I do nothing but just yell about AI and how it's changing the legal profession just all the time with mild applause. You know, (laughs) I actually went to the World Cup in Qatar this winter for two weeks. And when I came back around December, my jaw was a gop because I saw every lawyer and their mother on LinkedIn talking about how AI is changing the legal profession because of chat GPT. <laughs> and I'm just like, what's happened? I've only been gone two weeks. Why is everyone all of a sudden, you know, you missed it. Cute? Exactly. You know, <laughs> but which is just to say that like, you know, more than ever companies are thinking about and legal leaders have accepted that they're going to need to adopt artificial intelligence to some levels to stay competitive you know, and that the practice of law itself is changing because of these technologies and they need to keep up. And I mean, we are a company born by literal law students working with data scientists from MIT at the Harvard Innovation Lab. I mean, I was working with them since my one now. My legal education is effectively in AI applied to contracts and using that to kind of, you know, uh, change how kind of companies work and operate. And so I can tell you that like the excitement you know, and like I said, it's not just about the generative AI solutions. We are coming out with those also, but it's just about the fact that people are waking up to what we've been seeing for a long time, which is that, you know, the practice of law is changing. And I mean, this even goes back to the class where, you know, one of the things we even, when we first pitched the class to the Harvard Law School's Dean, Dean Manning, we said it was a lot of what happens in law schools is we teach how law affects technology, right? You know, how, you know, facial recognition laws, GDPR, but we don't focus enough on how technology is changing the practice of law. And I think that more than just the excitement around CLM and AI right now, there's a genuine interest on how technology is changing the practice of law. And even through these events we're doing at Harvard and such, we want to be leading those conversations because it's frankly been, you know, our entire kind of, you know, careers, right? So. Right. That's awesome. In the little bit of time we have left, let's let's talk a little bit about space law. Okay, because I know that you uh, you have a particular passion for it. What got you interested in space law? Yeah, I guess for me, I guess there's two things. On the one hand, I'm a general believer that we kind of know what's happening. Like for most of human history, we were peasants. 
we didn't have that much information. Now all of us have more information than Einstein. We still act like we're peasants. I feel like we still don't trust ourselves. And so like in 2016, we're saying AI is changing everything. We all knew that, right? you right. know, like, you know, blockchain, Web3 space. Like I do a bunch of things that seem futuristic, but to me, it's just like, we all know this is where it's going. You just got to believe yourself. Right. And it's very clear. Right. And then when it comes to space, I break it down to thinking of 99.9% of everything is outside of Earth. And that is actually a terrible statistic because it's really closer to 100%. It's 99.9 repeating. In reality, 100% of things are outside of Earth. Everything is outside. And the reason all of our laws don't care about who controls and owns 100% of everything is because we can't access that 100% of everything outside of Earth. But the second we can... That's going to be incredibly important. That's going to be way more important. You know, once we can like actually fully start utilizing things outside of Earth, who owns that and can control that and do things there is going to be immensely important. And so once again, just on this whole kind of trusting yourself going to the future, I just identified that as, well, that's important. And I don't care if other people don't believe me yet. Just like chat GPT, something will happen where the straw breaks the camel's back and people are like, oh, my God, this is important. And so, um, uh, yeah, that, that's where my interest kind of comes from. And, you know, uh, you know, I've been honored to, you know, wrote a peer reviewed uh, kind of paper that was published in the kind of New Space Journal. And have been spoken at events with the U.S. military down in Montgomery, Alabama and with the National Space Society. That's awesome. Your article was quite interesting because it focused, it sort of juxtaposes a couple of your interests, uh, the interest in space law, the interest in developing African countries and their role in the space program and technology. I thought it was an interesting insight into the way you think and the way you approach things. Thank you. And I do think like, that would be my advice for folks, right? Which is that people want to be super general and get things that are super popular, But like in the era of the Internet, you should get specific because there's going to be that one other person who thinks just like you, you can actually get to. It's not like the past where, oh, no one in my city likes this thing. So I'm just going to be quiet about it. You go out there and yell. I mean, the joke is even cannibals will find someone who wants to get eaten on the Internet. Right. You know, (laughs) you'll find. find, That's a new one on me. I have to admit. (laughs) But you'll find kind of what you're looking for. So you look at this paper on. Africa and the Artemis Accords, which is kind of this new promulgated U.S. kind of regulations around space. Very few people are writing papers about the Artemis Accords, and almost nobody was writing papers about Africa and the Artemis Accords. But me and my co-author, Kwame, when we published this, it automatically went viral. Actually, the president of the National Space Society, she actually tagged me on a post in LinkedIn, and we were third-degree connections. I didn't even know who she was. And she was basically saying, because they were doing a panel on third world kind of space initiatives. And in her post, she was like, hey, before you go to this panel, uh, make sure to read this paper by kind of Mamie Anwadiwe and Kwame, right? And it's, it's, it's just this idea that if you really just embrace your full self and kind of take that weird kind of, you know, interest you have, that weird intersection of the two, that's actually what goes viral, not the paper that's been written 50 times before. No, that, that's awesome. You must must have felt pretty good to get tagged on a LinkedIn post by her. Oh, yeah. No, and we're still close to this day. I love Michelle Hanlon and her project for all uh, moonkind. <laughs> Last question. You're also co-owner of the African Museum of the Metaverse. Yes, yes, yes. What What is that? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, uh, so it's actually, it's a group of, I mean, we basically, what we did was we got land 
and a lot of different Web3 metaverses. And so these are metaverses built on the blockchain, typically Ethereum, and the land itself is an NFT. So you have to buy the NFT of the land to actually have access to the virtual land. And then we work, my sister's actually the CEO of a company, NFT, 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 that does Web3 metaverse kind of uh, projects. And so they've actually been building structures and museums for us across these different metaverses. And then additionally, we have purchased art from top African and black artists that's NFTs. And so we have some of the largest collections of kind of African and black NFTs on their collection. And they're kind of displayed in these museums. And, you know, there's different events, different things that occur, free to the public, of course. You know, uh, some are accessible via headset, some are accessible via phone, almost all of them via the computer. And, um, yeah, I think just kind of what we were talking about before of, you know, just being confident on your bets for the future and thinking, I think when, when we were first starting it, the idea was only the African Museum of the Metaverse doesn't really mean anything in 2021 when we started it, 2022. But by 2030, that's going to be a pretty important thing. And it's already, I can tell, I think one of the other people who's on the ownership team is actually flying to Paris in two weeks to speak at the Louvre for this event called CTEM that we invited to, which is about kind of museum curators, et cetera. And so it's already had a bit of impact. So you're doing this with your sister. You must have fascinating family discussions at dinner around NFTs and metaverses and technology. I'd love to be a fly on the wall and listen in. It's a it's a fun time. And I will uh, say to my little sister, Chagrin, that she does not uh, like NFTs, Web3, any of that stuff, but it's fine. <laughs> Well, Meme, this has been a fascinating conversation. You're doing so many cool and interesting things. I'm looking forward to watching the next great thing you do. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having us on. Always great chatting. And uh, thanks for this opportunity and uh, you know, having this great program you put on. Well, thank you. Thank you for making the time. No worries. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.